All right, today we are talking about the lute. Not the flute, the lute. It's like the original guitar. And we're going to talk to Braden Hoffman, who is a professional lute player, lutenist. And our composer profile is on John Dowland, who wrote a lot of music for the lute. It's all about the lute. I am lute. Welcome to Early Music Monday. In prepping for today's episode, I went down the rabbit hole of the police. As in, like, the rock band, the police, and Sting. There is a whole album of Sting singing John Dowland's music, and then it got me into looking up other songs by the police, and then it made me take that and I took a left turn down memory lane a little bit into Nostalgia Court and found some of my old music that I used to listen to in high school. I would I listened to the Red Hot Chili Peppers pretty exclusively in high school, along with some Queens of the Stone Age and the Foo Fighters. Mm, that's about it. I was a rock and roll person. I loved rock and roll. I liked some of the classics, classic rock and roll a little bit, but I was mostly into that groove, funk, rock of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And uh, prepping for this episode felt like I was going back to my roots, but also connecting it with my newfound passion for Renaissance music. So it was really cool to kind of connect those two worlds. (laughs) Like, well... If I would have been born in the Renaissance, I would have been a huge John Dowland fan. I would have bought his t-shirts. I would have bought, you know, an autographed lute by him. I would have gone to all his concerts, had the backstage pass, you know, stamped on my parchment, everything. It would have been sweet. So to understand a little bit more about secular music in general during the Renaissance, a lot of it had to do with dance forms and dance, specific types of dance were often associated with specific genres of music. We're going to get into those and talk about those specifically in a later episode, um, like the ballad and some of these other things. But, but today I want to talk specifically about the role of the instruments in those settings. So the lute really was the main one. The lute is a guitar, more or less with a couple more strings, doubled strings, the neck, or the tuning pegs are like straight backwards. It's very odd looking to us, but it sounds really, really beautiful. It's kind of intricate and light. sounds very much just like um, chilling in your living room, kind of plucking your guitar. You know, that's kind of the setting that lute music would be performed. We could go a lot further into secular music. There's, again, we'll have an episode where we break down just a little bit of specifics into each different subgenre of secular music. But this is kind of the 10,000 foot view of, you know, 
Secular music also existed back then. Pop music existed back then. And it had the same role off, really, when you think about it and you kind of get to the root of it, it had the same function in society as it does today. It was just fun. So, that being said, I'm not going to try to talk about the loot anymore because I don't really know that much about it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but Braden Hoffman does. So we're going to turn now to our interview with Braden Hoffman. Braden did his undergrad at BYU-Idaho and then pursued a master's in lute performance from Indiana University, the Jacobs School of Music. He also sits on the board of the American Lute Society and has been a big advocate for lute playing in schools and early music in general. He's got some really great ideas and perspectives, and it was a really fascinating interview. So here is Braden Hoffman. Welcome to the podcast, Braden Hoffman. I'm so glad we can finally do this. Sorry about our technical fiasco last week, <laughs> but uh, it'll be good to, to have our conversation. So I, I want you to tell your story again of how you got into lute playing or even how you got into guitar playing and then into lute, like your story and path of going into music. <laughs> okay, um, it's a hard one. I guess through uh, high school, I actually did sports, motocross, snowboard. Um, I hurt my leg really bad, and I had a, a surgery that put me in a wheelchair for about three months. Ooh. And it was during that period that I pulled the guitar out from under my bed that my dad had bought me and was like, I'm going to yeah. learn how to play this thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And since I was on my own, I had a lot of books and I just opened yeah. up books and I would read through tablatures and I was just trying to figure things out on my own never had any really formal training you know maybe some piano as a kid then um graduated high school always did choir choir was fun yeah I don't think I could really read music I just followed the contour you know sure <laughs> oh, it went sure up, it went down and <laughs> yeah. then I started undergrad and I was going to go into history or English and I loved playing the guitar. I was a rocker through and through, loved yeah. all the virtuosos, and I just was like, hey, I'm going to take a basic theory class for fun. And I took that basic theory class, and someone heard me singing, and they were like, hey, you have a great voice. You should go talk to this person. And I don't remember who it was at that point, but they roped me into becoming a music major. Nice. So well, that's, I, that's a huge leap. <laughs> it is a huge leap. Exactly. And I loved it, because every chance I got, every theory class, I went, oh, so this is what I've been playing. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've been experiencing and hearing, but not necessarily understanding what I was doing. Yeah. And I think that that really opened some doors for me. And I started as a vocalist, um, did a lot of vocal juries. And then I started telling people I played guitar. And this is kind of a funny story I have about um, Randall Kempton. Mm. I remember him asking me if I could accompany one of the choirs on a on a guitar song and i was like sure and he said come oh, to my office <laughs> come the, to my office and the, play for me what piece was that i was in the <laughs> choir that year the 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 rune of hospitality probably is that that piece it might have been i just remember him asking me and i was like sure and i came to his office and he put the music in front of me and you know very politely <laughs> I wasn't a classical guitarist at the time. I just faked right. it. I could read tablature. I had a good ear, and I knew a bunch of classical tunes. And I sat down, and I played him some, and he went, thank you. That was a nice audition. And I didn't hear from him again. <laughs> <laughs> I 
but that was at the beginning stage. And then I realized, you know what, I do need to go take some classes. So I like sure. did a remedial semester. I got on the guitar. I put my head into a bunch of the Royal Conservatory music books, and I did a ton of them in one semester and immediately yeah. started juries. And that actually went pretty well. By the end of it, I felt like I had grown substantially and that I was able to be competitive with other players around me. So I guess that's kind of how I found the guitar. And it was during that process where I had to pick an ensemble as a guitarist and there weren't right. very many options. So I guess that means I could have taken bluegrass, jazz, or maybe a chamber group if I got creative, sure. which I did later. <laughs> but right. um, I did bluegrass a semester and I was like, yeah, this is okay. And I remember sat in a concert for the influences of Mozart. So it had people like Leopold and mm. some of his other influences. And it was all on period instruments. And me coming as a rocker, I sat in the audience and I went, why can't I play that? Yeah, That's the music I want to play as a guitarist. And I was so frustrated. Right. So another semester passes. I think it's about third semester now. And I heard a rumor that there was this thing, the Baroque guitar that the yeah. professor of the ensemble had. And I was like, interesting. So I immediately went and propositioned him about it. And he turned me down because they were doing the Messiah that year. Oh, and right. And <laughs> he was like, come back the following semester. And I did. And I remember I opened the door for my audition. I opened the case and my string had a had broke on my guitar right before my audition. I went, of course ah. it did. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. But he was really nice, and he still handed me the broke guitar, and he just said, hey, you'll just audition during rehearsals. <laughs> and I, that's kind of how it started, yeah. that's That was wow. my journey on the lute. And then after that, it was about eight semesters of continual playing, which wow. you know culminated with doing that YPF festival and... I yeah. practiced hard. I didn't have a solo teacher for the lute. I had some basic instructions from Dr. Tuller, who's mostly sure. cello and gamba. And I was kind of on my own, which was both good and bad at first. It was good because right. I developed my ear. I de developed my taste. And I got free reign in ensemble yeah. play. To like explore the things that pique your interest, you just go for it, which, you know, the cons would be you maybe lack a little technique in certain areas. But... You, you gain that love for it, which is really hard to teach. And you can't, you know, sometimes you almost do it backwards with instruments. Yeah. You teach the technique and the students don't love it instead of just let them explore for a little bit, get them to love it. And then, okay, we can fix these bad habits and we can do, <laughs> right. you know, these kinds of things, but at least they love it now to where they want to do it. Exactly. And to be fair, I feel like that's probably more how it would have been approached because it right. was just the current popular music. So you would have had anybody who, as long as they were competent and they had a good ear and they were a good musician, they would sit down and they would be included and they would right. share this ensemble experience. So I feel like in some ways I was able to have that experience more in undergrad where I had a bit of freedom. And then I decided to get a scholarship to the Loop Festival and I met my professor, Nigel, studied and landed myself at the Historic Performance Institute at Jacobs. And yeah. I got my master's degree here, which was great. And I got to be really immersed in studying the intricacies and right. the actual practices. And I feel like now I have this palette where I can kind of culminate it all together and play with the colors as I choose. Right, exactly. Oh, that's amazing. So I guess to start after that, um, maybe to back up, what about that music 
because a lot of people like to me the jump you made from being a rocker into i want to do classical music seems like a huge jump even you know listening to <laughs> leopold and mozart influences what what made you make that jump from you know the kids at my high school in guitar class and myself <laughs> wanting to be a rocker because i did too i mean that's how i started <laughs> in a rock band in high school i played sports and i did rock music that's but, so how did you make that jump that's a good question i feel like what i experienced as i was learning the guitar was a lot of frustration because a lot of my um, friends and stuff growing up through high school and after weren't on the same level of musicianship that I wanted to experience. Mm. And I feel like what that led me to was wanting to be able to be a solo performer where I could have all the musical elements at one time with yeah. one performer, something that right. I could control and rely on. Right. And so I feel like that's what led me down the path of classical guitar. And then I went, oh, the lute's kind of the same. I can actually play a four-voice madrigal. I can yeah. actually play this implied harmony that Bach wrote, and I can have this idea of a full sound without needing to rely on anybody else. Yeah. So I think that was an aspect of it. And the other aspect I had was more rhetorically based. And I feel like it's something I didn't understand at first because I didn't read music. But sure. Like I said earlier, when I was going through theory courses and figuring out, hey, this is what I was doing, it gave me this sense of a deeper understanding that I didn't quite understand until later when I went, wow, it's all rhetorically based. Music is something right. that we're trying to convince someone of something to sway their emotions. Mm. And so a lot of the rhetoric of modern music is repetitious or it has things that doesn't really allow me to follow a theme or to follow an mm. idea. And I think that's something that really stood out to me about the Baroque era. You would find this theme just put through endless sequences. Right, right. <laughs> endless sequences. And it uh, gave me time yeah. to really ruminate and to think, wow, this is, this is what I'm trying to think and feel and express. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing uh, and super profound. I think that, well, and to do that without text, for me as a choral conductor... I think about those types of things as well, but then on top of it, add the layer of text. And I think that's what's cool about early music. If you go back even further than that to like Dufay and some of the late medieval transitional into the Renaissance is it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, all of a sudden the text in the alto line just disappears. <laughs> so what do you do with that? <laughs> you know? So then how do you convey that, that rhetoric and those messages with instruments, doubling the voices, taking over instead of the voices, have the voices sing on neutral syllable. Like there's so much freedom, right? We can, we can step out of the museum a little bit and, and say, well, what are we, what are we going to do to tell this story to convey this emotion right. with these instruments? There's like so many colors that I think <laughs> that, to, to someone who just takes it at surface value, it's just like, oh, there's some plucked thing and then some weird recorder and then singing. Like, But it's like, yeah. no, 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 the colors are so just as wide a range as colors as you have right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's really, really fascinating. So Thanks. I guess to, to take a step back then, because again, I know I am stepping out on a ledge because I know literally nothing about the lute like for someone who claims to be an early music enthusiast i am embarrassed to say that i literally know nothing so 
Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the history of the lute and how it came in secular music uh, in the Renaissance time and, and kind of its journey. Sure. I mean, I guess where I would start with the lute would be actually to quote uh, a study from 1727. It was by Barone, and he said to report anything certain about the lute's true origin seems as difficult as counting the sands on the seashore. Nice. <laughs> and I think it's that's perfect. So like everything else. <laughs> and that was a, a treatise, you know, from 1727. Yeah. I think that really does encapsulate it, though, because the lute is surrounded with mystery. Um, they also tied it back to the lyre, and they would use that as part of the, uh, the vision through the Renaissance of trying to uphold these classical traditions, values, and stories. They would say, hey, this is now the lyre of the Renaissance. We have the same idea here as the Greeks did. Right. So I think right. that's the first thing they looked at the lute as being. But actual etymology is debatable. Some people say it comes from the oud, that it came from the Middle East, and that would make perfect sense to me. They seem very similar. They have a lot of similarities. Some people say it came from the lyre. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, but at that point, yeah, do what our do best. Do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you read history and you become an expert on, well, we're not really sure. <laughs> exactly. But I will say this about the lute is I find it just to be this incredibly fascinating and versatile instrument that experienced several periods of popularity. And it was such an innovative instrument. People were always trying to push it, push the limits, add more strings, change the technique. So yeah. I think that sometimes and we'll probably get to this topic later, but we'll get sure. this idea of things were done a certain way and it has to be preserved that way. But in reality, right. humans are always humans and we've been doing right. the same thing on this dirt ball for a long time. <laughs> and so I like to think that it's very approachable and they had the same kind of aspirations and ambitions and desires that I have today. Yeah. So how was that? So how did it make its, um, I guess in terms of Renaissance, well, let's start in England. Um, in terms of English Renaissance music, what role did the lute play in relation to maybe vocal music or even sacred music of the church? Like kind of go through and where, where was the lute if you had to like pin it on a map of different <laughs> well, genres starting and in times? Tricky just because they're not part of the continent. So they've always right. done their own Thing, right, But I guess where the lute really began would have been the explorations of polyphony. People would have said, hey, look, I have this two-part piece, three-part piece, and I only have one singer or two singers. So I think that something that is helpful for choral conductors and people wanting to approach early music to think about is that these instruments weren't chordal analysis instruments. We didn't approach them right. like we approached the piano and think of block chords and harmonies and sonorities. They were thinking about horizontal melodic lines. So right. Right. as you mentioned earlier, it's totally fine to double or to substitute an instrument for a vocal line. And that's the way that you would approach conducting it is say, okay, how would I want this approached as a voice, as an independent voice? Got it. So if you were a <clears throat> excuse me, if you were a modern conductor then, and you, let's say, just put yourself, I mean, I, the audience that listens to this podcast is kind of varied, but let's just say for the sake of argument that you were in the music education field and you were teaching like at a public school, teaching choir, would, how would you approach something that was like an early 
magical. I guess England or the continent doesn't matter. And you had this part where you're like, okay, well, I'm, we're mi- we don't have any bases because we're sophomores. So we have some, <laughs> some barely tones and some kind of tenors, we call them cambiadas. <laughs> so there's this line that we could double with something. Then what? Oh, good question. I think that what I would encourage people to do is to explore their repertoire and to not let things put you into any boundaries because mm. something that I experienced going through choir in high school and through the education system is the lack of opportunity sometimes as a guitarist or as an instrumentalist. And I'm sure this applies across the board. So I would rather say, give that violinist, give that cellist an opportunity to double a line, let them play more music, let them play in an ensemble. And it affects everybody because hearing a melodic line while a singer is singing it helps an instrumentalist understand articulations Mm. and how to do placement and phrasing and vice versa can apply to a someone singing where they go oh well this might <laughs> maybe i can't cheat that rhythm as much as i would have liked <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> or at all <laughs> or especially at all. You're talking about singers oh so my gosh I, would, I think that it's kind of like an open ball game like right i, I shouldn't say that because i know some people would maybe get a little frustrated but if you're looking at it you have to look at who your target audience is you have yeah. to recognize what experience you want to have with this music so what yeah. i consider a scholarly approach Yes and no. I would say sure. that would be more appropriate than picking up a guitar and strumming chords. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I think that, well, I think to me, something that you said is that I never would have thought of is let them, like, I don't know, like you said, it's it's not that scholar, scholarly, but if you're, uh, who who has the, what public school has the resources to, like, hire a ludist every time or whatever even i mean maybe once sure but or has that kind of resource on hand so it's like but this kid has an acoustic guitar let him let him play with the tenors or we have like two altos this year and everybody else sings soprano so play the the alto line and let him do it with a guitar and it's sure it's not a lute but it's close enough and well and, and it's can... really close to a theorbo at that right point. yeah exactly that's where you start as a continual player the number one priority is you have to play the bass line because that yeah. is the part that is written for you so that is the part that's expected of you yeah after that the figures are more of a guide kind of like a lead sheet in a modern jazz pianist or guitarist will comp and they'll substitute and they'll do all sorts of things yeah above. and that's the way it's supposed to be yeah so have you played much jazz guitar then? I haven't, to be completely honest. I took a jazz improv course in undergrad, but gotcha. I've done fingerstyle jazz arrangements. Gotcha. Because <laughs> I was, I was, well, that would have been my next question is, what similarities do you view between continuo and lead sheet playing? That's a, a great question. I think that they essentially do the same job. They fulfill right. the same function. One is an approach that is well steeped in the harmonic analysis and the other yeah. comes out of that approach of thinking of polyphony the yeah. figures are literally applied to numbers and if you were to do forehand proper voice leading techniques using continuo figures you would find that all the voices would end up lining up in ways that don't break part writing rules if right. they're good of course <laughs> right right that's uh, that sounds so like Mount Everest, climbing Everest, impossible <laughs> for me to do. But, but yeah, I get, I get exactly what you're saying. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, trust me, I was the same way because I came from that experience playing in that ensemble with uh, my own background and my own experience. And I was able to pick up a guitar and use the the knowledge I had, which might not have been as um, accurate because I wasn't preserving voices. But some instruments can get away with it. Right. Like a broke guitar and a theorbo will have a little bit more freedom than a lute. Sure. A lute is, is, is pretty much expected to play proper four-voice leading. And why is that? Why are those different then, the theorbo versus the lute? That's a great question. Um, the theorbo is put in a reentrant tuning, which is similar to a ukulele. So rather than worrying about parallel octaves or parallel fifths happening on the higher strings, they actually drop back down an octave, which means you're doubling the same pitch at a unison at a lot mm. of times gotcha. rather than at the octave. Interesting. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! That uh, so now my brain is spinning towards a completely different direction. So <laughs> so so then with the lute, how is the lute even tuned, and does that influence why it's expected to follow proper voice leading? Um, a little bit. It's not reentrant, so it's a it's a linear tuning, and it is actually very similar to the guitar, tuned in mostly fifths. But it would be similar to putting a capo on the third fret of a guitar and then dropping your third string a half step from a G to an F sharp. Oh. If you did that, you would have a six-chorus Renaissance lute, which is wow. also something cool because people could experience playing lute tablature and lute music without actually having a lute. Right, if they didn't have access to it. You know, I think about my school. and I mean, my high school, I, I've been lucky enough to live in fairly – uh, you know, middle-class suburbs that are close-ish to universities, actually, in Kansas and then in Las Vegas. But, I mean, my brother went to high school. My family lived in South Dakota. We were, like, in the middle of Nowheresville. So, like, <laughs> their high schools, even if they had money, I mean, no one for hundreds and hundreds of miles plays the lute. So that would have been – that. I'm sure that's a cool little – thing if you have a guitarist you could kind of teach them if 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 the conductor knew that that skill then you yeah. could go through and exactly and just and walk the guitarist through that thing because when i started broke ensemble i only played broke guitar and i didn't even know that there was a theorbo around and then one day the director whips it out and i just looked at it awestruck thing <laughs> i have to play that that thing is bigger than me <laughs> <laughs> so i went home and i researched the tuning and i found out that the intervals are pretty much the same as a loop but down an octave because of the reentrant tuning, but the yeah. shapes are very similar. So I did that on my guitar and I learned a bunch of shapes. And then one day after rehearsal, I just asked him, I was like, can I play that? <laughs> yeah. And he said, sure. And he handed it to me and I picked it up and I started playing chords and he looked at me funny. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? Cause Dr. Tuller, cause he got his doctorate in early music performance, correct? I think he got it in conducting. Oh, but didn't he get sure one of his though. degrees? Yeah, early, I think it was cello performance. Music? Yeah, gotcha. an early morning, or early morning, early, morning. <laughs> early music uh, conducting degrees. What I think, don't quote me. On gotcha, that. gotcha. I can't. <laughs> I couldn't remember either. But I, I mean, I remember seeing you on campus with the case for it. I was like, "There's that Theorbo. Braden's <laughs> got that Theorbo. We all know knew who you were just because of that giant thing that you <laughs> carried around. <laughs> That's fantastic. <sighs> so, what are some of the favorite? What are some of your favorite music to play then? As uh, on the lute. On the lute. So 
I love John Dowland. Um, the lute got more and more popular with that idea of taking melodic lines and playing them on their own. And so it kind of started this craze that existed for centuries of entabulating things. So most of the early lute's repertoire is actually vocal music that has been um, entabulated onto the lute. Gotcha. There's actually a lot of cool treatises that talk about how to do that. And each country took their own approach, which was kind of fun, especially regarding Fichte. But there are a mm. lot of actual resources and surviving uh, examples of this process being done, which is really neat to compare to the vocal originals. And we sometimes have uh, vocal pieces that are only surviving in entabulated forms. Right. Um just as a side note, I would love if after this interview, if you will just send me an email with just a couple of links to some of those resources, I'll post it in the blog that we have of each episode that goes on our, our website, because I'd yeah. be fascinated to read those. And I think, I think it would be, like you said, the whole point of this is to, is to bring it out of the museum. And I think that's one way you could do it. It's just everything we've talked about so far, you take a guitar, you put a, capo in the third fret you turn the third <laughs> string down to an f sharp and then you you just look at a couple of these resources i'm sure you could take and there's i mean on cpdl there's dozens of john dowling like pieces just dozens and dozens of free exactly. hobbies you could just go through and and kind of sort through and and figure out um, or even a singer that has like some decent guitar skills might say hey this piece is really really beautiful I would love to make an arrangement. And all you have to do is put one melodic line down at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you're fine to substitute. A lot of times, like especially the early German repertoire, they would actually drop one of the voices to make it easier. So if it was a gotcha. four part, you'd find it in three parts and that's sure. okay. It's and your arrangement. They, <laughs> yeah. And again, and I love, I love that. Again, this is, I am no expert and I feel like I'm kind of new to the game of, and a little bit late to the early music party uh, of <laughs> the resurgence of early music. So I, I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth too, too much, but I, I feel like that is the direction that early music is going is finding ways to take it out of the museum and just make it work for your ensemble, like bring it to life somehow. And, and yeah. you can, you can document, you can have little footnotes that say, this is what actually happened, but we're going to do this. As long as you do it on purpose, you know what's going on, you make a very specific choice, I think that you can really do a lot to help the modern audience. Like, I think of my dad. My dad, I was always just like, well, just sing in English. Like, you know, and <laughs> grew up on country music and, and they, you know, and my mom's, bless her heart, she's she's almost tone deaf. And uh, so that's my family. And just so I think of them when I'm programming, but they would totally appreciate something like that in a concert if you set it up well and if you make choices and explain your choices and things exactly. like that and i think knowing what your audience is too like if it's the yell ensemble i'm gonna expect something a little different than a high school choir you <laughs> yeah know that's mean? true that's totally true <laughs> that same uh, author i mentioned earlier barone this has not been only a recent problem. So remember that was written in the 1700s. He said yeah. this about that same topic. He said that some have done a little too much for a subject and merely fob off the curious reader with odd details. Mm. These authors have prided themselves on the secrets that they revealed and I will gladly leave them to their delusions. 
<laughs> and Whoa. later on, he says that he wanted to contribute something to art rather than detracting from it. And yeah. this is coming from a Lutonist. Right. And actually, that came from a response to his uh, Matheson's seething letter. Or not leather, but rev review of um, just music in general. But he <laughs> said some bad things about the lute. Put it that Yikes. way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then and then the quote you just read was in response to that. Yeah, it was in response yeah. to that. Wow. So I mean, I, I love the book. He was a, a lawyer, and that's something to think about with a lot of these musicians as well, as they had so many different positions they had to fulfill. Sure. Just like we do. Just like right. we do. Right. We have jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like my summer job, you know, several of my summer jobs or whatever, you know, trying to make things work and you, you're practical. And that's great. So if you were to, what are some of the main differences, I guess, if, if you were to explain to somebody like me, I could talk fairly confidently about some of the differences between the continent and the UK or Britain in terms of its choral repertoire. But when you add the lute into it and talking specifically about secular tunes or secular music, you know, you compare the Italian madrigal to the French chasson to the English madrigal. What are some things, similarities and differences that you see in, in those countries? Yeah. So I think England has always had this really unique development being separated because if I think secular, for some reason, I'm always drawn to England. Yeah. They have such a vast repertoire that's based off of folk tunes. So the same principle was going on at the time with the lute in England. But um, with the monopoly on the printing press existing, they weren't really able to publish that music. But you had this idea of the consort, the broken consort and just the plain consort, which essentially consort of instruments would be a family of all the same instruments hmm. and that's something that we have to think about from this time too is rather than having a transposed instrument in b flat or a transposed instrument in e flat right. they would just pick up a different shaped lute <laughs> right right <laughs> and there were several there was a whole family of them they had treble lutes that were tiny and d major and some big old bass lutes and they really treated them like it was a choir, and so the same thing was going on with broken consorts, but you would have a mixture of instruments. So Morley was doing this quite extensively, and I think the lute really kind of picked up with Dowland, and when the Monopoly was lifted, because Dowland was able to publish his lute song. Right, And the lute right. songs are well steeped in all of that English tradition of folk tunes, so like a yeah. lot of the John Dowland music is actually a quote or a reference to something else. And they, mm. they loved doing this, these little parodies that you would find where maybe it was originally a sacred text, but now it's not. Yeah, and vice, <laughs> versa, vice versa, right? <laughs> yeah, vice versa, yeah. right. You hear Beatles tunes in church and you just... Hey, I know <laughs> That's that. how you do it, though. You have to do the political commentary. You can't explicitly come out and say, here's this Beatles tune in church, <laughs> yeah. but... You could reference it and quote it and be astute would listen and go, ah, ha, ha. Yeah, exactly. It's like your subtle little way of rebellion or, or not even rebellion, just of your <laughs> philosophizing of whatever. So. Exactly. So thinking about that and then also the way that the English handed, uh, handled um, hymns and mm. the way they handled uh, moving in Fabardon. Right. Right. So how does that... I'll go deeper into that 
how, how does that translate? Or I guess just go further. <laughs> <laughs> how does that translate for... For the uh, loop well, specifically I, versus like purely vocal music that was... I, I mean, I guess Foberdone... When I think of Foberdone, I think of sacred music. I yeah. do. In early sacred music. So how does that transfer over into the secular world and out of the choral... Because when you're talking about the lute, you're talking about family of instruments with a consort like a choir. I think the instruments so often, even today, this is a side conversation, I'm sure, but we're trying to <laughs> imitate the voice. Yes. It was all intended to, again, that melodic contour of melodic line sung vocal shapes. So with Faubourdon into the instrument family and and into the secular genre. Yeah, I think this is actually a cool concept that leads us to the result of continuo and figured bass. Um, not just Faberdome, but descant, particularly mm. in England, was so popular. And it's just this idea, a formula, really, if you think about it, where you are given lines and you're filling in other lines just based off of a relative pitch, which to me is so close to the Beatles' harmonies. Yeah, you have you have one person singing this melody, and they say, "Hey, I can follow that with the same contour, right? Just a fifth, or a third, or a sixth, or an octave apart, right? <laughs> yeah." And it set up this precedence of saying, "We don't need to write down four-part vocal pieces anymore. We can give you a bass line, we can give you a melody, and you can fill in the gaps in between." Hmm. Hmm. And yeah. that's probably how it led more to a, I mean, a lot of that's probably speculation too, but well, <laughs> I can but... see that as a result, because rather than just playing, then you're. Right. Yeah. And, and then you, again, you'd have the other instrument playing the other line below. And so then, yeah. but that top voice or whatever, doesn't have to you just fill that in, depend on, depending on what the baseline is doing and. Exactly. Like so I think it really helped free the composer or the performer, really, because we have to think that composers and performers weren't so separate in the medieval and the Renaissance. They were mm. pretty much the same. There wasn't really this idea of I'm a composer that didn't right. exist. <laughs> yeah. So this was more of performance practice things that as it progressed and as we started having this desire to notate music onto paper, we started trying to find ways to capture that aural phenomena. But prior to that, it was it was the music that happened first and the writing that happened later. <laughs> yeah, so then what role, I guess, because, I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, but if you were to, how much of those things were strictly improvised versus supposed to be intuited based off of those symbols? I think it depends on where you come from, and this ties in with your secular and sacred question. I think secularly, you probably saw all of this happening, just like you hear yeah. with modern music. You probably heard parallel fifths, you probably heard parallel octaves, you probably heard <laughs> everything because you have folk musicians getting together and just expressing. Right. I think what we have and what has been passed down to us is the highbrow literature. We have right. what was written down, what was commissioned for for court, what was paid for right. for the private chapel. <laughs> yeah, of course. And especially when you go back to what you mentioned before with William Byrd and Talus with the, with the monopoly, 
who knows what else what was going on <laughs> yeah like the tradition of the lauda is something that always resonates with me the lauda experienced tons of evolutionary aspects but it's still preserved in some parts of spain and there are other poetic traditions that exist in parts of italy and it's just this idea of, of humanity communicating right. and trying to express and i think that is the core of what hpi should be is how did humans communicate and how did they express themselves and share what they were experiencing in the form of music and how yeah. can you make that relevant today yeah so i turn that question to you how do you make it relevant today that's a hard question it really is um someone that always pops into my head when I think about early music and its resurgent is also Taruskin. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the name, nope. but he wrote an article in the nineties called the spin doctors of early music. And he mm -hmm. talked about how in the absence of a vital creative impulse, classical music has become that chill museum you mentioned earlier. And that yeah. a violin that uses a period bow is going to claim to be a better curator than one that doesn't. And someone using the whole package is obviously going to be the best curator of all. And I just think it also depends on the approach from because I mean, early music at the core is going to be a nerdy subgenre of classical music. Like we have to <laughs> yeah. just accept that. Like, yeah, like that is so just... the nerdiest of nerdy. Like it's so bad, but so good at the same time. So good. so good. And so I think what happened in the in the boomers era is they decided to come out and say the rhythms were wrong. We're going to the sources and we're going to find out what they did. Yeah. Yeah. which was really important because uh, up to that point, we had all these instruments that had continued to evolve or de-evolve, depending on who you <laughs> talk to. Sure. And they got back to the core of it. And it was a period full of excitement, I'm sure, finding new works, cataloging them, recording yeah. them. So we have this body of reference work. And I think that we can't overlook that experience. But Taruskin continue, continued and said that being the true voice of one's time is roughly 40 times as vital and important as being the assumed voice of history. Mm. And that's a tough one for me. And I thought about that because he also goes on talking about how early music will never rebel or anything like that. And I thought, whoa, 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 I'm self-taught rock and roll player here. Like, <laughs> I rebel from the beginning. <laughs> right, right. That's what we are. <laughs> I was rebelling before I started. So I think right. the ways that we can do that is by making this music have a life and have a future and to uh, and yeah it might evolve and it might not be preserved in the way that we have oftentimes just assumed it's supposed to be right so i and guess I think you that's have the... to... oh. oh no sorry go ahead <laughs> oh um to me it just seems like that's the that's one of the things that when you really come down to it uh one of the great things I remember from uh, Dr. Caroline Buff was just like, as much as we might want to think we know, we have no idea what this all sounded like. Like there are some great inferences, some highly, highly educated hypotheses. There is <laughs> absolutely no empirical evidence anywhere of what it sounded like. I mean, we can see what it looked like and what some things are inferred and patterns and, and all these things from research, but no clue what the sound and the aural aesthetic was exactly and the only so thing I, that i can trust is 
my own ears and my own experience. And so I think that being said, I recognized that these were humans. These are people. We're not studying some arcane or foreign (laughs) entity. We are examining human beings. And so I try to dive deep into my own feelings and my own sentiments. And of course, they're going to be influenced by my experience. But that's something that we have to just accept by this point. Right. And it's so no we're, longer but so we're can theirs. we recreate. <laughs> right, right. And I think and I think that that to me is something that's also really profound and important is we recreate only in so much as we are to create something new at the same time. Because we're creating a new experience with this music for somebody, hopefully. Hopefully someone's going to hear this who's never experienced it before. So we take something that we heard, we try to, we have an experience with it. Then we try to recreate that aesthetic to hopefully share an experience with somebody else, which is exactly Exactly. what they were doing. They were doing the exact same things. They were taking, huh, Dufy did this thing or, you know, Lano Power did this thing. Okay, well, let's, Let's try to recreate and you get, <laughs> it just like keeps going. And that's so, exactly. so to me, I think that instead of trying to recreate stiff performances of just on the page, I think that to me, what you just said is the most important in terms of bringing it to life is having a, a personal connection with it somehow, and then seeking to give an experience to the audience instead of just, recreating a piece of art the exact same way that it was exactly and i mean you're hitting it right on the head and i think that that uh, what teruskin was saying about being the voice of one's time i think that we right. can do that by also echoing reflecting and eternalizing the voices of history i mean look at what yeah. Mendelssohn had done with the rediscovery of bach bach yeah and, and it's still influencing us to this day so just because something is historical, I actually find that a common phrase that's been going around in the early music community is that early music is new music. Mm. And I like this idea because you're right. It's a written practice that we have now. And we know for sure the music isn't what's on the paper because all forms of notation is just trying to capture an aural phenomena. Right. And so we know that right. it's not what's on the paper. Like, we can accept that already. We have, like you right. said, indications. We have some examples or some performance guides. I think one of my favorites is tablature because tablature is probably the closest we have to a recording because we know mm. literally where someone put their fingers. Yeah, it like it's exactly, <laughs> it has to be right there. Like it's... Yeah, it goes right there. You put your finger there and you pluck it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And you, so, you can only pluck it probably a couple of different ways, but that those are not <laughs> a wide variety of differences. So by that point, you're arguing fingernails, no fingernails. I don't care. Right. As long as it sounds good and it doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> right. But again, practicality. I guess I should add that. <laughs> right. Convincing is the key word because you said that earlier too. And I, I think that having it be convincing will be steeped in the rhetoric because obviously yeah. – if it doesn't sound as you would speak it, then it's not going to have the same poetic form as it was intended to have. Sure. And you mentioned how your dad was like, why not sing it in English? Well, that's why. <laughs> Text placement exactly. can be so wrong. <laughs> so wrong. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk amongst choral conductors, too, about just, like, the color of vowels. Like, you study different languages, and 
you, you sing something by Rachmaninoff with Italianate vowels, it just doesn't sound the same. Like <laughs> that, those Russian vowels are supposed to be different, and the notes and the harmonies are influenced by those vowels, whether whether the composers realize it or not. Sometimes, and the same thing in British uh, choral music. You're not going to sing that with Germanic uh, vowels a lot of the time. So I, I just think that in, in that way of what you said, music is language because you can have things written down too. Like you, you're reading a, you're reading words, these, you're trying to write down these symbols of these sounds, yeah. but you can't really convey tone in, no. in, an, in a, in a, in a written, in an email. I mean, some authors can, right. But, but, you have to be really educated, but when you speak, and there's going to be flexibility. There's going right. to inevitably be flexibility. This is why Absolutely. I think Shakespeare is so enduring. Is Shakespeare has this profound body of works, but little to no actual stage direction. If you look at modern yeah. screenwrites, they uh, it just reminds me of Beethoven and after with composers like trying right. to notate every little desire on your yeah. paper. And it lets it not, not be organic anymore. So yeah. I guess the argument about early music being new music, I would say it is because we can't go back and listen to the recording and say, what did it sound like? Which is also the pet peeve of most early musicians. Right, right. But, oh, crap. <laughs> exactly. But that means it's forced now to yeah. live in this state of limbo. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's where creation comes from. Like, that's where the greatest moments of creation come from. And that's why... There's a bill, I mean, especially again, like you talk about British choirs, there is as many British choirs as there ever has been, have been recordings of Talis and, you know, because, because there's little subtleties that you can do different. Whereas again, like you said, with modern composers, it's like, it's really hard to, why, why are you going to go and record this piece by fill in the blank composer after Eric Whitaker with all these right. sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, exactly. When it's like, and, and again, this is not bashing on the, the Eric Whitaker phenomenon, but he's notated every single thing be, because it's supposed to be this very specific language. Whereas like you said, with yeah. Shakespeare, those things will endure differently because they could be reinterpreted and subtleties can be taken. And why not and have a pause still right relevant. here? Yeah. There's a and comma. Let's still pause. Relevant yeah. for people. Mm. And I love yeah, that. I like and I think that. that's what we need to do with music is we need to realize that we have this guide, we have this form mm -hmm. and now we have a body of reference works, which we also can be eternally grateful for. <laughs> right, but absolutely. Now we can break from all of that. We don't have to go look for the newest book discovered by Vivaldi in the attic. I mean, if it turns up, awesome. Like, yeah. I want to be the first person to hear it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be at that concert. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that brings me to maybe my last question of where do you see... I mean, maybe you've already answered this. And if you have, I can see you having already answered it. But I guess, what would you like to see in the next five years, I guess? What would you like to see in terms of the early music scene? I guess that's a hard question. I mean, I feel like this new pandemic in this virtual era that we're entering into is going to come at both a cost and, and a gain. I feel mm -hmm. like... Um, a lot of the older generations, the pioneers of the whole movement, 
are getting in older in age and we're going to mm-hmm. start seeing some of those and we already have seen plenty pass or retire mm-hmm. and it's opening the doorways now for younger generations who have a different approach it reminds yeah. me very similarly to the way segovia brought the guitar back i mean the guitar almost fell into obscurity and then he said no look i transcribed all this work that wasn't meant for the guitar Mm-hmm. And he brought it back to concert audiences. But with that, he also brought rigidity where he said that it had to be done his way, his fingerings. He was the maestro. and It was the maestro right. syndrome. Right. And after his passing over the years, guitarists have been able to be flexible again. And I have a feeling that early music in the next 10 to 5 years, you're going to see a complete revitalization of mission statements from early music societies. You're going to see sure. um, more youth involved and i think that's really the key i want to see as many young folks as i can yeah experiencing early music whether they go on and do something with it or not i want to see young students sitting in the hall being exposed to this music that is part of our human heritage yeah and i think to me that that's that's something that i have always felt this insane draw to to deep history and and because it enriches the current and the future and i think with music i mean that's why i started sound of ages that's why i started this podcast that's why my whole career path has changed because it it took it took me you know one foot deep 30 feet wide understanding (laughs) and 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 love of music to you know, a 10 foot wide, 300 feet deep love and richness and fulfillment of music, like of all types. I listen yeah. to, I listen to old slave songs. I listen to Hungarian folk tunes, Eastern music, like the whole world palette of music has become deeper and richer because of my understanding of early music and its, and its place in history and what it did for all music going forward. Out, out, even completely. outside of the Western canon, I guess you would call it. Yeah, and I think that early music has a lot of room for this exploration, and I'm excited to see it happen. I think that it was part of that maestro syndrome as well, where we had our revered composers and artists, which I don't right. want to ever undersell them because I will never stop playing Bach. <laughs> right, but right. It'll be an exciting period where now we can look at how cultures interacted. We got to do that yeah. a little bit in my Renaissance and medieval course saying, well, there actually were delegates or delegates, not delegates, delegates <laughs> from China that were spending time in Italy and yeah. vice versa throughout right. all of this period. And it, there's so much more we have to learn in the realm yeah. of historical performance with other cultures and civilizations. And I'm excited to see where that's going to lead in the next 10 years. Yeah, and and just the wide range of, you know, you go to a concert and it's going to be, for me, that's one thing that I would like to see too, is you go to a concert and and this is nothing against, like you've said, the previous generation of like, okay, here's a professional choir and here's all the works from this book by such and such composer. And that's the CD. Like, those are research albums that are literally invaluable. But to a modern audience now, if we're going to sell an experience, I'm not going to try to recreate that because they already did that. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you put these pieces from 
you know, these Chinese delegates and, and, and Italian music. And how do you put all that together in, in one big audience package where they have this amazing experience instead of just like, well, here are all the secular works from book one and here's book <laughs> two. And like, which exactly. is when we, like you said before though, like when we find the new Vivaldi book or whatever, you need that. I'll be the first one there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll be on that recording project. I'll record every <laughs> single one because, but again, that's not, I guess that's for us to separate. Like you said before as well, are you, are you Yale <laughs> early music <laughs> scholars or are you a public school in the in the midwest trying to just give the audience a great musical experience to be fair and going along with it i do think that that's one of the positive outcomes that this hpi movement's going to have in the foreseeable future is we're going to start seeing people approaching it this way and rather than it being uh, and I, i don't think it was ever the intention to be looked at as being inauthentic or right you know any other negative aspect it's just oh of course we care so deeply about this that we look at it and we're like no but you could do it the right way <laughs> <laughs> right right you could do it the right way but that's the best part about this is is it the right way i don't know but right i would rather live and i would rather yeah. reach people than not yeah absolutely and especially young kids one of my favorite things that i have done up to this point was as i was serving the loot society and running around high schools all around the Wasatch front. I was doing all these uh, demonstrations of the loot. Yeah. And it was so cool to just put this instrument into a kid's hand and just look at their face and just go, what, this is it? Because (laughs) people, if they're, if they know what it is, oftentimes confuse it with a mandolin or the same toy that you see someone play on. um, What is it? frozen let it go or you know like one <laughs> right. of those little four string things i'm like no 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 it's very different <laughs> <laughs> there are a billion strings there when, are a billion strings and for people like me it's just like i'm not allowed to touch that that is definitely <laughs> a museum relic and i will break it i'm just gonna look at it from afar that's like <laughs> you know people people choral musicians be like okay don't touch the band instruments don't touch the orchestral <laughs> instruments so definitely don't touch, don't the touch baton. that and don't touch that early music instrument because that is worth more than your life, man. So you just don't touch anything and you just look from afar. And so I, I think that that's actually really too. cool. I think that's really cool. I hope that changes as well. And I think it will. There are companies out there trying to make early music not a study of privilege. Yeah. A study that anyone anywhere could do. And that's something that I feel really strongly about as well. And there are companies yeah. like um, Le Lute Doré who mm-hmm. have started manufacturing lutes, but they've done it in a historically accurate way. So they're actually usable, yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic. And they're affordable. It's something that, hey, now I can play this. I can do this. Yeah, that's I can experience awesome. this music. And I, and I, and I think that's so great because it, it, it makes it to where I, I bought a modern lute yesterday. I can play it in a concert of early music. I don't have to go and buy one that was and I think that's another misconception is, I mean, we did Sound of Ages, we did uh, Dufay, Nupero's Autumn Flores. And we got two, mm-hmm. two sack butts from BYU's early music. Were they like, in tune? Instrument. Yeah, they were actually. It was amazing. I, I, you know, I was a little nervous too. It was, but it was, it was fantastic. We did it for Western ACDA just this past March. And it was awesome. And, you know, I emailed the trombone professor and he emailed back, we got these from such and such archive from such and such. And so I'm just like, 
So what, what if someone tried to recreate and make a sack button now? Would that be not okay to use in performance or what? Well, of course it would be okay so, to use. You I know, think that's like, where, so that's the we're thing. swatting at gnats here. We're like, right. <laughs> our lutes, I have Nile gut strings. <laughs> right, <laughs> you right. You have to be able to approach the new era and make it approachable. I'm actually kind of excited because I'm going to put some uh, modern machine pegs that look like normal pegs on my loot, and hopefully yeah. that cuts my tuning time in half. <laughs> <laughs> That's, oh, geez, that sounds like a nightmare. But but I but, think that there's so many musicians like me that think the way I was just thinking of, well, there's not very many of these instruments. So that's why it's so hard to get historical performance. And that's why it's so expensive to get them is because there's not very many of them. And you hear the stories about Stradivarius. And so it's like, Oh, you know, like, so you play lute, you have one of 100 lutes in the whole world. That are <laughs> you know, like that's the, that's the really like naive kind of ignorant, but very real like perception that, yeah, choral specifically, probably. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I think the number one thing to think about all the time is how innovative they really were, and I don't think there's a reason to put it in a box or to be scared of it. Like this is <laughs> kind of cool to see how crazy innovative they were. This is an Elizabethan lute, so this is eight courses. That means that there are pairs of strings. Some of them are in unisons, some of them are single, like the chanterelle on top. Yeah. And some of them are in octaves as you get oh, lower yeah. down into the strings. This happened, and as it developed, the medieval lute had four strings, oftentimes without frets. So it was more mm. like an oud. And then as the music became more demanding, bass lines became more independent, they started stretching their fingers out further and adding more and more bass strings. So you see the top of this lute here. Right. It looks like a regular lute. As it progressed, and they started saying, I want more strings. <laughs> they started just gluing things on the top. <laughs> this looks so the this most is insane my, thing I've ever seen. <laughs> this is my treble rider, and this is the, the bass rider. And at this point, it kind of works as a harp. You see that I have strings hanging yeah. off. So right. it's kind of cool as the lute developed into this. This is more of the Baroque lute, the music of Weiss and Bach. But it actually is a lot more simple than it looks to someone who might look at it and say, what is this thing? Really, right. most of my strings are just a scale. Cool. And we call those the diapasons, just like on an organ. It's like the foot mm. pedals. Gotcha. So that means that the thumb on the right hand can navigate and play an independent bass line. So it's like designed for two, this lute in particular, is designed for two voices. Right. And that's something that cool. Look at just the difference between Baroque, Medieval, and Renaissance. People who right. played this lute said that that lute's tuning in music was horrible. Right. <laughs> and it was just a, genera well, a generation or two away. Exactly. And they're like, oh, it's horrible. They specifically said about the Renaissance music that it had no melody. So it was no, no mm. cantabile. They only right. cared about these harmonies that you were hearing but the melodies were really lame <laughs> <laughs> right right and, so and it, you know you can kind of see how that that thinking then influenced the next generation and then that thinking and influenced them and the, the the pendulum back and forth and the reactionary and 
and that kind of thing. So yeah, and now we're to this point where let's just play good music. Let's yeah, share let's just good play music. All of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very like uh, almost like a, a um, <laughs> contemporary indie kind of thing. Like, yeah, man, do whatever you want. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's a good sound. And that's a good sound. And that's a good sound. And that's a good sound. You know? You're right. And it's yeah. something that I think about like we can get away with doing this still because of the fact that we don't have CDs. Yeah. Like, you know, we can't right. do this with the Beatles because guess what? Oh, let me just listen to the Beatles. Yeah. Are you going <laughs> to Are you going to listen to the Beatles or a cover band sounding like the Beatles? You're going to listen to the Beatles. You're going to listen to the Beatles. Well, guess what? I can't listen to Bach, so I have to play it. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's like such a good point. Man, I could go on for a long time, but we better wrap this up. So, okay. um, uh, but let's let's do this again sometime and we can talk maybe about we can get into the nitty gritty of some specifics about things about certain pieces or or certain genres if, within secular music and things like that. It would be great to have a follow up in, I don't know, six months or something and, and kind of sure. continue our conversation. I think it would be really beneficial. So, yeah, I'd love that. I hope I'm back in the area because Utah would be a fun place to play some loot. Yeah. <laughs> If you were trying to find someone from modern day who is comparable to John Dowland, I don't really think there is anybody. I don't really know as many people in the pop music world, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But in my mind, it's like if you combine Ed Sheeran, Evanescence, and like dance music, party rock or something, that would be today's equivalent of John Dowland. Super gloomy music, emo, the hair would be, it'd be like My Chemical Romance, you know, the hair over the eye, the straightened hair over the eye, one just one eye, uh, but plays guitar really, really well like Ed Sheeran does, and then it's also, he also played a lot of dance music, like, I don't know, modern dance club music remixes. That sounds exciting. Incredibly exciting. I don't even know how you'd create that today, but that was John Dowland. So he has a large amount of secular music. Well, he wrote secular music almost exclusively, not quite. He has some great two-part pieces that would work really good as duets. And also, if you wanted to do like a beginning choir a two-part piece. So there's one that's famous in Darkness Let Me Dwell. Now, Sting from The Police, as I hinted at before, Sting has an entire album of John Dallin music. And it is awesome because he sings it like a pop song. I, I you know, the, the scholar in me is like, well, you know, you're not the best classically trained singer but as just someone who loves music and thinks that early music has a lot of applications I actually think that's so cool because 
that's probably what it would have sounded like back then because it was performed by sometimes really famous, trained, popular singers, and other times it would be performed just sung on the street or in someone's private residence or whatever. And so I think that's so cool. And it sounds it sounds like a, 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 an acoustic album by Sting. Um, in Darkness Let Me Dwell is one of the ones that Sting does. So the range is within an octave. The surface, surface rhythms are easy. The meter is clear. The tempo is slow. There's great harmonies that are really expressive. And again, this is super kind of solemn, melancholy music. But it would work so awesome as a beginning level piece. Um, an intermediate piece would be If Flood of Tears. It's another slow, there's mild polyphony. And it would, I think this is another one of those that you could put in the category of an introduction to polyphony. Like it would work really great in uh, as a group's first piece of polyphonic music. Um, and as for a difficult piece, I'd say something... Uh, Something from his second book of songs or airs. One piece, just as an example, is clear or cloudy. It's It moves kind of quick, and the rhythms are kind of all over the place, and the polyphony is a lot more dense than any of his other pieces. Well, it's for five voices, so there, this second book of air, airs, and when he does five voice things where it's five voices throughout the whole piece. Some of his music, it would be for a solo and a lute during the verse, and then for like the refrain, it would come back in four or five voices. But then there's other pieces that are just five voices throughout. And when it's five voices throughout, oftentimes he in, like kind of uses more polyphonic language and dense polyphony. Um, so that one is an example of one that I would consider a more difficult piece. But so much of his music is so doable and so accessible. And like Braden said, you could you could teach a guitar student to read the tabs, even if you don't play guitar yourself, by helping them tune the guitar. Again, like he said, put a fret or put a capo on the third fret and then tune the third string down a half step, I believe is what he said. And there's your lute. And go look up that Sting album. The album is called Songs from the Labyrinth. And uh, so the album is with a lutenist named Eden Karamazov. He's Bosnian. And it's all 16th century John Dowland music. And it is so cool. I'll put a link to uh, the like trailer for it that he has on YouTube. Because it is rad. It's so rad. It came out in 2006. Um, so if you want to hear, like, you could totally do that at a concert, a Pops concert or something. And I don't know. There's all kinds of ways that you can incorporate early music, not just early sacred music, and not just the typical, like, Fair Phyllis I Saw type thing. You can have a small quartet of students do it in between two other choirs at a concert and have a guitar player come and play the lute part. 
there, there's just, oh, it, it would be so cool. And there's so much John Dowland music that is all fairly similar in its level of difficulty and texture that really the best way is to just go on CPDL or listen to, you can pull up albums and albums of John Dowland music on Spotify, Apple Music, again, the Sting album, and you can find just tons of songs that you can do that are all good. So take some time with John Dowland and and uh, incorporate the Renaissance Rock and Roll Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. Had a great discussion about the lute, secular music, rock and roll. It's my jam. Learned a lot from Braden Hoffman um, and talked about John Dowland. I'm going to go listen to Sting's album right now. Thanks for tuning in. Give us a rating. Uh, five stars is appropriate. And uh, leaving a review really helps. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.